and it's a, it's a narrative prophet, so that's a little unique. It's not it's not a, a series of oracles, nor is a great deal of time spent on the oracles of God. And we've we've come really to the halfway point in the book, and we're moving to the second half. We we saw the first act, chapters one and two, and now we're going into the second act. And the first act we saw in the first scene, Jonah is given the word of God to go preach. Jonah flees, he runs, and God pursues him and chases him down through the storm. And that was that first scene. And in that second scene, it opens with, with Jonah praying in the belly of the whale. And we saw that he wouldn't pray when he was in the storm, but now he's praying. He's praying a song of thanksgiving. And he, he really praises God for um, what he has done, his salvation. He saw the, the desperate predicament he was in, he was entangled with death, and we saw a desperate plea. He pleads for God. He repents. And then we saw this, this saving plan of God. That God had planned it and orchestrated that the fish would, would swallow him and save him from the storm that he was drowning in. And we saw that salvation belongs to the Lord. So we really moved from, from this death to repentance to life. And now we open into to the to the second act, the first scene of the second act. And there's a similarity in the opening scene of the first act. We had Gentile sailors turning to the Lord. And now we see Gentile Ninevites turning to the Lord. And there's going to be some similar themes of mercy and of repentance. God's sovereignty and grace come up again and again. So John, Jonah chapter 3, starting at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray now for your spirit to work. We pray for the filling of your spirit to open our eyes and to see what you want us to see here, to see what your word says and to apply it to our own lives. Father, we pray these things in the name of uh, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.
while, while Thomas Edison was working on his invention, the light bulb, it would take, it took a team, a whole team, an entire 24 hours to, to put this thing together of straight labor. And the story goes that Edison was finishing with this one light bulb and he gave it to the young boy to take up the stairs and shoot and put it where it's supposed to go. And he's carrying it up the stairs, scared out of his mind that he's going to drop it near the top of the stairs. It slips out of his hand and breaks. And the entire team has to go to work again for 24 more hours, laboring intensively. And as soon as they finished that, Edison looked over, gave the light bulb back to the boy to carry up the stairs again. You say, we love, it's a great picture of second chances, right? We love second chances. There's just, there's this great picture of that. And that's what Jonah is doing here. He gets a second chance. We saw in the first act he was doing a terrible job. But then... God moves on and gives him a second chance. And we're going to see in this in this text, really, the activity of God. We see first God recommissioning Jonah, sending him out, giving him a second chance. Then we see God's revival in Nineveh. And then we're going to see God's relenting of disaster. So there's a recommissioning of Jonah, then this revival in Nineveh, and then a relenting disaster. And hopefully we see the God's activity throughout but as we see this first recommissioning of Jonah, we see this in verses 1, 2, and 3. And, and first, God gives him a second chance. We see that in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. God doesn't give up on his prophet. He doesn't leave him in his sin, in his misery, in his rebellion. He goes back and he reclaims him. And that's what we saw in chapter two, 1 and 2. He reclaimed him, he restores him, and now he recommissions him with the same mission. And the, the verses 1 and 2 here are almost identical to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. He sends him out almost the exact same way. God, God doesn't, isn't done with Jonah. He, doesn't, he does not disqualify because he runs, because he sins, because he messes up. And I think that's a great picture of God's forgiveness. God surprises us with his forgiveness sometimes. That we see that he is so forgiving. Opama Robertson said, Men have a much greater problem forgiving and forgetting than does God. That we can't do that, but God just forgives and he moves on. He doesn't have to go and chastise him anymore. He's repented. Here's your mission. It's the same mission. So we see that God gives him a second chance, but you also see that God calls for a total obedience here. There's a little distinction in what is said. In, in, the, in chapter 1, it says, Preach against Nineveh because its wickedness has come up before me. But in, in this check section, he says, Preach to it the message I give you. Before it said, Preach judgment, I was saying, Do whatever I say. Preach whatever I give you. Just obey me. He just, he kind of, it's almost like he's given a unilateral call to obedience. I don't want you to just preach this message. I want you to go to Nineveh and you're going to preach whatever I say. He's calling for a total obedience here. And it's interesting. God gives him a second chance, but then he doesn't lower the standards. He raises the standards. He says, you're going to follow me. You're going to obey me. This is your calling. And, and I think it's important to see that God is calling Jonah to preach whatever he says. God calls people to preach his word. The church is to preach his word. Whatever he says in his word, that is what's supposed to be said. And we can see that here. It's, it's, it's very similar to the way the prophet Micaiah speaks in, in 1 Kings 22. 
when he says, as surely as the Lord lives, I can tell him only what the Lord tells me. And in that instance, they're trying to get him to say, change his message. They're saying all these other prophets, these false prophets are saying this. Just say this to the king. He says, no, I can only say what the Lord gives me. And that's what Jonah has here. So we see Jonah gives, gets a second chance. God calls Jonah for total obedience. But then Jonah obeys God's command. Now it's interesting here, there's the same repetition. I don't know if you remember, but in, in, in chapter 1 it says, Arise and go to Nineveh. And then it says, And Jonah arose. And he went and he ran. And we're, we're kind of, it's like that shock. It changes. It's a little bit of a, and here we have that same repetition. Arise and go to Nineveh. We're going, okay, I hope he's going to do it this time. And Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. And you almost as a reader want to cheer for a second. Okay, we don't have to go through that all over again. Good, we got that part. He's getting there. He's going to make it there. He may not do everything right when he gets there. He may have some problems, but he's going to get there, right? You kind of feel that, that celebration, that sigh of relief. And we're supposed to feel that as readers. But I ask you, why do we cheer? Why do we celebrate when Jonah is, for Jonah's obedience? Well, I think it's first, we know it would be foolish if Jonah ran away again. I mean, Jonah, it didn't work very well when you ran away the first time. So we know this is going to be a bad idea if you would do it. But we also know it's going to be a good idea if you obey. It's not just it'll be bad if he doesn't. But if he obeys, we know it's going to be beneficial for him. And so we get this sigh of relief. We get this cheer. Yes, Jonah, you're doing it. And yet, do we see God's word in our life that way? We see it in Jonah's life so simply, so easily. But do we regard God's law as foolish to disobey? And do we regard God's word as an advantage to obey, as a blessing to obey? We're quick to tell Jonah that God had a perfect plan in his life if he would just obey. We're quick to tell him that. We see it instantly. But as soon as that applies to our life, we go, well, I don't know about me, God. I don't know how you're going to work this out, God. We start to doubt. We start to wonder. Jonah, If Jonah would have fled right there, we'd all go, man, Jonah, what a fool. What a fool. But if we flee again and again from God's word, we think it's going to be okay and it's going to be good for us and we'll be safe if we do that. It'll be easier and simple. We often try to flee or hide from the word of God in our life, don't we? And we think it makes sense. It makes about as much sense as if Jonah had got up and ran back to Tarshish again, or tried to go back to Tarshish. It makes as much sense as that. We hear passages like Romans 8, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And yet, Running from God this week somehow makes sense in our brains. Somehow we think we're, it's going to be okay if we run, and it's going to be bad if we obey. And it's the opposite. And Jonah chose right here the best choice. He chose to obey. We are to do the same thing. We are to choose to obey, knowing it will be the best choice. So as we see God's recommissioning of Jonah... We see God forgiving him, giving him a second chance. We see God calling for total obedience, not lowering the standard, but raising it back to where it was, where it should always be. But then we see Jonah obeying. 
And we see that Jonah made the right choice in this recommission. He obeyed. And that's, that's the opening. It kind of sets the stage for the whole second act. Jonah's going back. He's going to do it this time. God doesn't have to reclaim Jonah yet. But then we move from this recommissioning of Jonah to this revival in Nineveh. This revival. And we see this in verses 3 through 9. There's a revival there. And, and there's a couple of things to note. And the first is verse 3. It says, now Nineveh was a very important city. Now, now literally it says it was a great city for or to God. Now, what does that mean? It's a great city for God or to God. Uh, there's a couple of ideas. One is, is this saying that there's a lot of religion there, that it was, there was a lot of gods there, which has historically been true. Others have said this is really a large city. This great city means it's giant before God. It, it's a big city. Others have said this is an important city. Significant. That's a possible idea, and that's how the NIV and ESV present it. And I think that's that's right, but I think it's it's even more than that. I think it's saying this is a significant city to God. Not just in general, but to God. God cares about this city. And the reason I think that is that really the rest of the book supports that idea. The, the chapter 3 and 4 is talking about God caring for the city of Nineveh, how he cares for those people. And then if you look back in in chapter 1, the confession of Jonah on the boat, he says the Lord is the God of all things, all creation. And so he's making this statement, and now we're seeing it being playing out. This is God's city. In a special sense, this is God's city. This was a significant city for God. That's the idea there. Nineveh was a great city for God. And that kind of sets the stage for this narrative. And we're going to see in God's revival the message we're going to look at and then the response to that message. And the message and the response. What's the message? What does Jonah say? See that in verse 4? What does he say? He proclaimed for 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. Now 40 more days is it's a common biblical time frame. You know, Jesus was in the desert 40 days. Moses goes on the mountain 40 days. There's a flood for 40 days. Does this have some special significance? You know, I, I, don't, I don't think so. I think it just means soon. Next month, just around the corner, there is impending judgment, is the idea. And that's what that, that second phrase is. They will be overturned in verse 4. This is the word means to be turned upside down, to be turned on their head. The fierce anger of God is looming. And this word is what's used to talk about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's just wiped out all the cities in the plains. They were overturned. Amos 4 says, I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And Genesis 19 says, He overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities, referring to Sodom and Gomorrah. This is a word for judgment. Jonah is preaching warning to the city. There is an impending judgment. Now, is that all he said? I mean, these are, there are not too many words there. He doesn't really elaborate, just, just judgment, 40 days, and it ends. Well, I, I think he probably explained it a little bit more than that. I think we know that because in verse 8, the king knows that they're to repent of their violence and their evil ways. So it probably assumes that he didn't just invent that idea, but that Jonah told them. And we know in his, Jonah's confession that there's only one sentence in his confession in chapter 1 where he confesses God. But then afterward, it explains that he told his whole story there. So we can assume that he explained what's going on. 
that because of their sin, wickedness is coming upon them. But even so, the length of the message is intentionally short. The focus is not on the words there. That's not the focus. And I want you to see that Jonah doesn't use an amazing argument. Rather, he preached a straightforward message. The shortness and simplicity of the message shows that God is working. God works this revival. Jonah doesn't spend a lot of time there either. Do you notice that in verse 4? On the first day, it's one day walking. He's just beginning, and God's already working. So clearly, it's not Jonah's amazing effort of dedicated ministry for years. It's not his powerful rhetoric, him wooing them over and winning them over. He's just a straightforward, plain message. There is judgment coming if you don't repent. That's the message. And 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 I want you to realize, and I think it should provide confidence for us when we have, are challenged with the responsibility or the call to evangelize, the call to share the gospel. It sounds intimidating. And you see, Jonah just walks in and speaks, and it all works out for him. Not because he was amazing, not because he had the best words, or he had the best history of obedience to God, because God chose to work there. And that's the only answer to that. It was a plain, straightforward message. So when God works through the proclamation of the gospel, you don't have to have perfect words. You don't have to have perfect words. And I think too often we make reasons thinking, I don't know how to answer this. Or I don't have enough time to really work through this. I don't have enough uh, uh, intelligence or education. Or I haven't been a Christian long enough to share this. And we see that Jonah has not had a great history. It's not that he's done all this studying. God just chose to work through it. And when God chooses to work through it, you don't have to have perfect words. I think that's an encouragement to us. You don't have to have numerous opportunities to share for God to use those words. Simply a sentence can do. Sinclair Ferguson, a pastor, wrote about his testimony about this idea when he said, When I was almost 15 years old, I began to realize in a way I had never done before that I stood in the need of salvation. And one winter evening as I walked home, I slid in the snow beside a small elderly man. And under the dim light of the street lamp, I could see that he was dressed entirely in black. And after a moment's conversation, he asked, Son, are you saved? These words were like a knife in my soul. How did the man know that it was my greatest longing in life? to know that I was a child of God. By these and other words, God guided me into his kingdom. I learned then that sentences are all God's needs when his children have the touch of the Spirit on their lives. What hope and confidence this inspires in our witness. Just one sentence, just one question, one word can be all that is needed to bring people into the kingdom of God. And we forget that. We put it all on our shoulders and think we're going to do it. We pretend like we're going to run in and we're going to take care of it all. And you see Jonah here. He goes in. He goes in probably a little bit disgruntled. He had a bad experience, you know, in the last two chapters. And he just speaks plain words. And the city changes. There's a revival in Nineveh. One scholar said, The ability to speak only a few sentences is no hurdle to the Holy Spirit. Isn't that great? There's no hurdle to the Holy Spirit if you can only speak a few sentences. So I hope you see from this this confidence and an encouragement as we share the gospel, as we find opportunities to witness wherever the Lord opens those up for us. 
And before we look at, we've looked at the message, but let's look at the, the response to that. Before we look at it, it's important to remember the city of Nineveh. What is the city of Nineveh? Do you recall who lives there and what it's like? You see, Nineveh, it's located on the other side of the Fertile Crescent on the Tigris River, really in present-day Iraq. But it's a, it's a royal city of Assyria. It's an important city for Assyria. And the Syrian Empire is a powerful military empire known for their cruelty, known for their oppression. Uh, they were known to, to really do monstrous things to their captives uh, as, as a way of just instilling fear in others. And in, in, in Nahum, the prophet preaches judgment for Nineveh about a hundred years later. And he says this, All who hear the news that is about the judgment about you clap their hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? This is this is this is something that when it when it falls, everyone is celebrating. A hundred years later, and this is a hundred years before that, and I don't think we, we, from our evidence we, they were still acting that way a hundred years before that. And so he's going in to lion's den, where they they don't just say oh they don't just laugh at you, they they string you up and they're going to kill you if they don't like you. They're going to do vicious things to you, and it's. A people that opposed God's people. They were enemies of God. They were enemies of God. The northern kingdom of Israel had already warded off uh, a, a disaster by basically paying tribute to Assyria. They were going to get wiped out and they paid tribute to Assyria. So they're already under their heel in some sense or another. And so when we come to that, and we have that vision, then we come to this passage and we see what is the response of this, this people. What is the response of Nineveh? How do they react? They react in a revival. It's really a surprise. They believe in God's word and they have a heartfelt turn to him. And notice in verse 5, from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. The whole city responded to this message. Now that this picture of sackcloth is not one we're used to. I've not put on sackcloth before, and probably you haven't. But it's really a coarse material, which would have showed self-abasement, contrition, would have showed humility and really a submission to God, remorse. That's that's what it is, a picture of. And the same idea with fasting. And in verse 6, the king sat in the dust. That's that same idea. Uh, Nehemiah 9 says this, the Israelites gathered together fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. They confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. So these are these are activities you do when you're confessing your sin, essentially. When you're showing remorse. And that's what they're doing here. They're spending all day weeping. We might say, you know, he didn't shave all day. He's been in his room all day on his knees. That's how we would talk about it. But he went in sackcloth, was fasting, and sat in the dust. That's the, that's the picture. And I think verse 5 is a summary of the entire revival and the entire response. The, the Ninevites believe God. They declared a fast. All of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. That's a summary of what's happening here. Because the question comes up, well, who declared this fast? Who is the they in verse 5? Is it the people? Well, this is no democracy. I don't think it's the people. I think it's really the kings and the nobles. So verse 5 is saying what happened in all of Nineveh. And then 6 through 9 is explaining how that came about. Let me tell you about the decree that brought all these things about. 
Does that make sense? So it's not that the city repented and then it finally made it up to the king. Rather, the message was that they all repented. And the message came to the king and he had this decree and it's explaining it. And what we want to see there is it's probably, it's very likely that Jonah was preaching to the king. We don't, we can't know that for sure, but it seems like he's at his throne when he, we hears this. It's almost like he's, Jonah's the envoy who's entering the throne, throne room as an official, you know, representative from another country. And that's where he gives him the message, probably. And we know that the king, it wouldn't have been, uh, financially or economically beneficial for him to support this revival. It wouldn't have been, politically savvy to support this revival. So it's probably, this is showing genuine contrition. He shuts the city down and says, we need to repent. He really believes it. And the king sets the pace for the whole city. And so we saw in the message, God uses a simple message to bring revival, but we see from the response that God brings revival to all kinds of people. You see, The revival, when God works it, is not an exclusive experience. The revival is for everyone, from the least to the greatest. It's not an upper-middle-class experience. And I think we understand that Christianity must be proclaimed to opponents of the church, to enemies of the church, just like Jonah does here. Not just enemies, but enemies of the church as well. Just like you and I were enemies of the church and enemies of God before we are saved. And Jesus Christ is not for any particular people group. And we need to remember that. And it's easy to say that and understand that. He's, he's for the rich and the poor, the uneducated and the educated. It's for the powerful people and the helpless people. And that's, that's really presented here. The gospel needs to be preached to kings, to presidents, to sultans. But it also needs to be preached to outcasts, to deviants, to the poor and the wretched. It's to both. And we all want to say yes, but how many of us consider the transvestite community part of the harvest field? How many of us go out and think, oh yeah, those murderers over there, those thieves, those are candidates for the gospel. But that's what this is saying. But it's not just those who are who are wretched, but those who are powerful. The, the crooked politicians the self-absorbed celebrity, even the affluent, wealthy, generous billionaire. They need to hear the gospel and it's for them too. And we need to remember that, that God works revival for all kinds of people. And we need to know that they need to hear Jesus and they need to come to church. They need to be invited to Grace Highlands and to other churches to hear the gospel proclaimed. It's for all people. And we have to remember that again and again. Nineveh was an enemy of God. But what a great city it was for God, isn't it? So God works a revival through plain message. And God works this revival for all kinds of people. So we've seen him recommissioning Jonah, working this crazy, wild, amazing revival, bringing Nineveh to faith, bringing Nineveh to believe God and repent. But then we see God relenting disaster. See that in verse 10? God is a God of mercy and compassion. And it's important to note that God is not obligated to show mercy. Do you see that first? They repent. Everyone call upon the name of the Lord, the king declared. Who knows? God may yet relent. 
It's not that we're going to twist arm, twist God's arm. We've got a way to make Him show mercy. It's let's cast ourselves upon Him and see what happens. The people know God is sovereignly acting, and it would have been just if He punished that city, if He punished Nineveh. It wouldn't have been wrong for Him. If the if a serial killer comes to the courtroom and he says he's sorry, and he really is sorry. That doesn't mean it's wrong for the judge to punish him or to put him in jail. Now, the judge could be merciful, but he's not obligated. And so God is not obligated here. We see the same language in Joel 2, 14, where Joel says, Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind the blessing. Saying, we don't know what God's going to do. Just turn to him, and he might turn to you. He might show his compassion. So you can't turn God's hand. You can't force him to do anything. As Exodus 33 and Romans 9 repeats, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God is in control of it. But yet, God loves to show mercy, doesn't he? He loves to show mercy. And that's the second point. God's not just obligated in this, in this, in this relenting. He's not obligated, but he loves to show mercy. When God saw what they did, he says in verse 10, and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. He, he had compassion. He turned. He relented. In other words, some have put it, God suffered pity for them. It's not that God is changing his plans, but it's a human way of saying that God inwardly ached for Nineveh and relented. He saw them he had pity upon them. He had compassion for them. And he relented. And that's a beautiful expression to talk about the way God cares for his people. Nineveh was a great city for God. Because it was a platform to show his mercy. To show his love and his compassion. To show that he is a kind, merciful, and sympathetic God. And that is the God that you and I worship. That is the God that you and I pray to. Do you serve a God like that? Is that the, is that the picture of God you have when you go and pray to him? Because that's how the scripture presents it. That's how he gives himself. He is a God of mercy and compassion. And too often we bring our own picture of God onto this. We impose our own vision of the way God must feel rather than seeing how God actually feels. He has compassion. And can you think of another time when God's heart ached for a city? When God's heart ached for a city. When the Lord had compassion for another urban center. In, in Luke 19, it says, As Jesus approached Jerusalem, and then he would have been coming over the Mount of Olives, from Bethany, because that's the setting here, he saw the city, and the Mount of Olives is above city of David above Jerusalem. And you could just see it right there. It's a big vista. He would have come out and saw the city and he wept over it and said, if even you, you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, the day will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. There he is. He's, Jesus is weeping for the city. 
It's another city where God's heart ached for them. But they refused. And so the judgment came. In 70 AD, the city was leveled. The temple was destroyed. That was the judgment of God there. And there were so many warnings of that. And we see our Savior is a compassionate Savior. And this same idea is repeated again in Luke. God delighting, God longing to show mercy, but his heart going out to Jerusalem. Luke 13, 34, Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. There we see the compassion of God and the stubbornness of Israel. God is a God of compassion. He loves to show mercy. We see this throughout the whole gospel. If you start looking through the gospel, God's compassion, Jesus' compassion comes up over and over and over. In the feeding of 5,000, Jesus looks around, he sees them, and he had compassion for the people. In the feeding of the 4,000, it says that he had compassion for the crowd. The Canaanite woman cries out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. And you know what? God had mercy on her and healed her. When God, when Jesus touches the man with leprosy, there's one instance where he touches them. He doesn't have to. But he touches them and says he had compassion for the man. When he touches the two blind men, he touches their eyes so they can see, it says he has compassion for them. God, Jesus Christ, had compassion again and again and again. Luke goes on and says he had compassion on the crowds because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Our God is a God of compassion. And Jesus Christ is the manifestation of his kindness and compassion and mercy. We are to follow Nineveh's example, not Jerusalem's example. And call urgently upon the Lord. He saves We are to put on sackcloth. We are to stop standing up tall and proud before our God. We are to bow and sit in dust before our Savior and cast ourselves upon the mercy of God. Because he is a God who loves to show compassion. He longs to show compassion. We've seen that God recommissioned his prophet. He gives him a second chance, calling for obedience, forgiving him. We see that God led a revival through a simple message. And he had this amazing response. The revival was for all the people. All the people. All kinds of people. But then we see God relenting. God's not obliged to give us mercy. He doesn't have to show us mercy. But he delights to show us mercy. Isn't that wonderful? We worship, we serve, we follow a compassionate Compassionate enough to send a compassionate Savior. And so let us not flee from him. Let us not be like Jerusalem, stubborn, holding back. Let us be like Nineveh. Let us call urgently upon him. Let us run to our compassionate Savior so he can gather us under the shelter of his wings as he longs to. Let's pray. God, you are a God who is compassionate, kind, relenting from disaster, relenting from the judgment that you could bring.
And Father, you have done that so specifically in your Son, relenting from judging humanity, but instead deciding to send your Son, a Savior who is compassionate and caring and longs for his people to run to him, to run to the shelter of his wings. Soften our hearts to run to you, God, to find salvation in you, to not stand on our own, but to put on sackcloth and sit in dust before you. May that be what we do this week, this month, this continuing year. May it be a time we realize you are a compassionate God and we can run to you in the shelter of your wings, Father. We pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus. Amen.